afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is novelist Sherry LaPena, whose mystery, Not a Nice Family, has just been published. Sherry, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you. It's nice so to this, be here. This novel is what I would call a classic murder mystery. It takes place within a wealthy family, which I think it's fair to say is a dysfunctional family. Uh, and mom and dad end up dead right at the very beginning of the book. And a lot of the suspicion lands on the adult children. So I want to start to ask, start out with a couple of questions about beginning a mystery. Mm-hmm. And the first is, what do you know as the writer? What do you know first? And the second is, how do you decide what to tell the reader first? Oh, okay. That's a good second question. Um, so when I start, I don't know that much about what I'm going to be writing. So I always start with just sort of an opening premise or an opening idea. And I have a couple of characters in mind, starting characters. And because I can't, um, I can't plan ahead. I, I, I really am someone who just writes as I go. I can't, I can't see the whole book outlined in my head. Uh, before I start. Um, I just start with that opening premise and a couple of characters and I put them in there without really knowing much about them. And then I start writing. And as I write, I learn more about the characters and more about the situation. And I add more characters. And that's sort of how I roll. (laughs) So to me, with this one, you know, I wanted to have, I wanted to look at adult children, adult siblings who in that relationship that they have, which is sort of a contentious one, and they're all sort of bound by this dysfunctional upbringing they shared, but also they, they're very competitive and there's these rivalries. So I wanted to look at that. And I wanted to um, look at uh, people who might've killed their parents because I wanted to look at the relationship between parents who are disappointed in their children and children who have reason to dislike their parents. Yeah. Um, for, so I like to, to look at that. So that's all I really knew other than, um, the parents would be really rich. So there would be money involved. So there'd have to be, um, you know, if I made the parents rich, then it could be an outsider who killed them for money. Or if I uh, made them rich, it could be the greedy children who want the inheritance, or it could be that they just hate their parents. Um, So I knew that much when I started, it was going to be a wealthy couple murdered who had a number of children. um, And it was a very dysfunctional family. And that's all I, that's all I really knew. And that they were going to, all meet for dinner before the the day of the killing, they were all going to meet for dinner. So I just started with the scene where they're dead on the floor. And then I went back and I started to build characters going to dinner. So the the scene where they're dead on the floor um, is in the book labeled as a prologue. And I've talked to a lot of authors and even my own editors going back and forth about, do we have a prologue? Do we not have a prologue? How, How do you feel like using that word prologue how does that make it different for the reader as opposed to just calling it chapter one? Um, I think it's important. If, if, if a prologue is um, needed, then I think it's a really good device to use, but I think I keep my prologues very short. 
And so what I do is, you know, thrillers have to start with the bang. So if I started with the long dinner party and the reader didn't know that the couple was going to be murdered, or maybe they would know from the back of the book. So, I mean, it's good to have that up front because you see the dead bodies, you go, ooh, and then you go back to the dinner party and you, you're already thinking, ooh, what happens at this dinner party? Who are these people and who might be a killer? So in that situation, a prologue works really well. And quite often with my books, I will have a prologue. Um, so in my previous book, The End of Her, I had a prologue where the first wife dies in a, in a mysterious kind of accident, possible murder. Uh, 10 years earlier and that's short but you see it happen and then that launches the plot so try to think if there's books I probably have books I I don't think I had a prologue in Couple Next Door I mean if if things happen quickly enough you know in Couple Next Door they went right to the dinner and the baby's missing so I didn't need a prologue I don't think so basically it's a way to get the start with a bang if if you know you need to start with a crime if you have a long story trying to figure out who did it, you kind of need to have the crime up front. So a prologue is a good place to put yeah, it. Yeah, what you say about the dinner party reminds me of what Alfred Hitchcock said about, about filming a thriller, which I'm probably paraphrasing here, but he said, if there's a man sitting on a bench, that's that's a very dull scene. But if there's oh. a man sitting on a bench and there's a bomb under the bench and the man doesn't know there's a bomb under the bench, now yeah. we have an exciting scene. And that's kind of like, if there's a dinner party, not very interesting, but if there's a dinner party and you know two of the people are gonna be dead the next morning, Pretty yeah. interesting dinner party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there's a paradox, I think, in the opening of this um, of this book. We have this we have this mansion that we see from the outside. From the outside, it looks like everything that you know Americans are supposed to want: wealth mm -hmm. and success, and you know this gorgeous house and all these grounds and everything. Um, but the title of the book and the bodies on the floor belie that perception. Can Can you talk a little bit about the way you use facade in this book? Oh, um, that's a good question. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's the American dream, isn't it? I mean, this is a self-made millionaire, the dad, um, but it's a very unhappy family, even though they've had that, that big success. And it's interesting because the father, Fred Merton, who's murdered, um, becomes a, a, a billionaire. And there's some talk about him being a, a psychopath. So, you know, how um, there have been stories about, you know, quite a percentage of very successful businessmen are, are psychopaths. Um, so he's a psychopath and he's used it to advantage and he's become extremely successful. And yes, they look like they've got it all, but he's a psychopath and it's a very dysfunctional family and they're all very unhappy and it, it's very messy and money isn't everything, but they think it is like they all want the money. And, um, you know, they think if they have the money, everything will be great. And they think if they don't have their horrible parents, everything will be great. So, um, yeah, it is a facade. And you're right. In most of my books, I, I will have the facade of the happy family, the happy couple. Um, everything looks perfect on the outside. And then the minute you scratch the surface, it's it's not good at all. And that's sort of sort of my my oeuvre, I suppose. Um, for me, one of the one of the first hints, I think, about you know just how dysfunctional this family is came uh in a comment that one of the children says of their spouse, um, he says she was his first experience of unconditional love, um, mm -hmm. which I, can you talk a little bit about how you present information obliquely in a, in a mystery like that? You know, you don't come right out and say his mother never seemed to love him, but you present mm -hmm. it in this sort of oblique manner. Talk, talk about that, that technique. Oh, it, it, you, you really are a good reader. You're catching up on lots of stuff. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I do like to do things obliquely because it's so much more fun than just saying, you know, his mother never loved him. But 
Now, the fact that he relies on his dog for unconditional love instead of because he never got it from his parent, that tells you a lot about that character and that relationship without spelling it out. So I like to do that a lot. I imply, I hint, and I, I hold back information like all thriller writers do. And I, thrillers are all about reveals and timing. So it's how much are you going to tell? When are you going to tell it? How are you going to tell it? And um, there's quite an art to it um, to to reveal just enough to because, in you know, in this story, the, the question is, which of these three kids might have killed their parents? Because it was a very bloody and violent murder. And you think on the surface, again, none of these people look like they would be capable of something so violent. And of course, because it's a thriller, I've got, you know, I've got other suspects in there and other people who might have done it. So we never, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but oh, there's no. a lot of suspicion right away on the on the adult children. And um, so right off the bat, like you want to plant little hints that it could be anyone. So the son, you know, wasn't loved by his parents. You know, you have little, little hints all along. And it's really, that's the fun part is putting in these little hints and reveals and reversals that the reader goes, <gasps> um, that's really the fun of a thriller, isn't it? Yeah. I, I love the idea of threes uh, in storytelling. I mean, it goes back to fairy tales, the rule of three. And you have mm-hmm. three children in this, yep. in this unfamily happy family. And it allows you to kind of explore three different ways that somebody might be um, shaped by the dysfunction that is this family, by the overbearing patriarch that is, that is Fred Merton. Tell us a little bit about each of those three uh, children and the ways they have sort of emerged from this this family dynamic. Okay, so the eldest is a daughter called Catherine, and she is the uh, favorite of the parents. The parents clearly played favorites, and that has messed with the kids' heads. Um, obviously, you're never supposed to play favorites, but Catherine is the um, eldest, uh, the pleaser. She became a doctor because that's what her parents wanted. You know, on the surface, she's got it all together. She's married. Um, but as the story goes on, you see there are little um, hints that maybe not everything is right with Catherine, which is also the, the same with the two other kids. So the second child is Dan, uh, Dan, and he's the one who feels the most, he's the least favorite of the kids. He's the one who's the least successful, and he's the one who's been treated worst by his parents. So he's the boy, the only boy. And he was brought along to take over the big Merton company. And then six months before the book opens, the dad just sells the company, cuts him out of the business, and he's unemployed and, you know, really struggling with that. So the dad basically sold the business, he says, so the son wouldn't run it into the ground. So he never, he runs his kid down so much, he's never really given his kid a chance to succeed. Um, and then the, the last one, the final daughter, the youngest one is called Jenna. And she's completely different again. She's a, an artist. Um, she does really risque sculptures and she partied, she's under the New York City party scene and they're very disappointed in her because of her lifestyle choices. So um, there's sort of a quite a range, the really repressed oldest, the wild young drug taking youngest and then the disappointing son in the middle. Um, yeah, and then the dad is a psychopath is very demanding and undermines his children all the time. And the wife is just sort of under his thumb and, and not very interested in the kids. She's very sort of disappearing. I almost feel like the, the, those three characters are sort of a roadmap on here are three different ways you can really mess up your children, you know, by, by being the kind of um, the, 
kind of father that, that Fred Merton is. And, you know, his, his children say awful things about him. And the more we learn about him, you know, we're, we're kind of inclined to agree with them. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that brings me to my next question, which is I, I always felt like there's sort of two, I mean, I, I hate to break things into dichotomies, but there's sort of two kinds of, of murder mysteries. There's one like Murder on the Orient Express comes to mind where the victim is completely unlikable and unsympathetic. Um, mm. And the reader might even be going, well, you know, it's not such a bad thing that this guy got murdered. Uh, and the other one is where the victim is is sympathetic and and the reader feels the need uh, for the detective or whoever to, you know, bring justice to this, this innocent person who died. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about, as a writer, the advantages and disadvantages of, of those two ways of having a murder victim. The one, like in this book, who's, who's really unsympathetic versus one who, who um, is a sympathetic character. Gosh, I've never thought about that before. Um, I've never actually consciously considered whether my victims are sympathetic or not. Um, I think for me, it's not so much, yeah, I, I, that's a good question. Um, I, I would think if, if you have a very sympathetic victim, then you, you well, you're always going to want to know the answer anyway, even if you've got an unsympathetic victim. But mine, this one wasn't so much about the victim as it was about the mess he left behind. Um, so I'm trying to think if I've ever done like a really sympathetic victim, even in my last book or the one before that, the, um, they're never very, you know, I don't do a lot of likable characters. I don't <laughs> do a lot of sympathetic characters. It's just kind of the way I think. Um, but yeah, it's a different, it's a different feel. If you, if it's, if it's a sympathetic character, you want to get to the solution and you want justice. Yeah. And in this one, I think it's not so much that you want justice. You just want to know. Yeah. So I think when you get to the end, we don't really care which one did it. We just want to know which one did it. Cause he, you know, he kind of had it coming. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, Ted, Ted muses um, about his own father. This is a, uh, he says, the world is better off without certain people in it. And we kind of yes. feel that way, I think, sometimes about uh, about these these victims. Are there layers of morality involved when you have a victim who, you know, makes people's lives miserable for, for his own enjoyment? And if so, like, how do you, how do you present those kind of varying layers of morality? It doesn't seem to me that it's completely black and white in a book like this. Yeah, no, I, I don't like black and white um, things generally. I like to see things in uh, spectrums or shades. So yeah, there's, there's, there's always a moral, um, there's always a moral core to any book I think about killing and justice and, and, why people do what they do and how they justify to themselves what they've done and whether that justification works for them or not. Um, so so there, another interesting thing in the book is that, so the, the spouses of, the, of a couple of the adult children who start to think that their spouses may in fact be, a mur may be murderers, um, they have a, a different moral code than the three adult children who as children of a psychopath, I think we're all kind of on this spectrum of psychopathy. Yeah. So I was doing some reading and there's, you know, they're thinking now maybe psychopathy is uh, not necessarily a yes or no. It's more of like on a spectrum, like a lot of things. So 
I've got, you know, the three children and all of them, you start to learn a bit about them. You realize they're all a little bit on that spectrum. And then I, you know, I get into the whole nature versus nurture thing. Like how much of this is because they've got genetic um, carryover from the psychopathic dad coming down and making them psychopathic because there's a genetic component, but they've also got the bad upbringing. And, you know, there's that whole question I love to explore too. But the, the couple, the two people that married into the family have a different genetic background and a different um, family background. So they have a different moral code or they look at it from a different angle. So I've got a bunch of different moral codes. The kids have a certain moral code, like they're all better off without the parents and they all admit that, but it's like, but who, who really killed them and who would admit it? But the people on the outside that, that married into the family are, they're like a little horrified at the glee the kids almost have about the parents being dead so yeah there's a lot of moral layers in there i think you know trust and the lack of trust plays a a pretty big role in this among the family members and i think that especially comes into play in these marriages Mm -hmm. uh where you know the just the suspicion that maybe your spouse might have been involved starts to put this this real tension on these marriages and really tests the trust between Mm -hmm. uh the spouses. Can you talk about just sort of how you treat the, the notion of trust in this novel? Well, kind of the way I do in most of my other novels. So in most of my other novels, I, I usually look at the intimate relationships, husband and wife. Um, I like to look at that relationship because it's because, you know, the intimate relationships are the most, um, well, they're the most intimate. So they're the most compelling and the most, if trust is broken, it's the biggest upset, right? Yeah. So, um, I, I always like to look at husband and wife. That's why in this book, I wanted to broaden it a bit because I've done a lot of husband and wife stuff, but I still found it creeping in because I love the idea of someone who's married to someone that you're supposed to know as well as you know yourself. And you find out that they've lied about A, B, or C, and you can't believe that they lied about that. But then you come to terms with they lied about that. And then, you know, you, you, you forgive it. You think, oh, they lied because they're protecting someone else. And then it's like, oh, that's not really why they lied. And then and there's another lie and then they don't know where they are and other evidence comes into play and it could be read two ways. And I love to do that to my reader. I've got, I'm always juggling who could have done it. And I'm always yeah. adding in things that make you suspect this person and then thinking, you know, things that make you suspect another person. And there's, there could be a good reason for this thing happening or or it's because they're the killer. So the the poor spouses, I put them through hoops. I really do. <laughs> And, you know, and the spouses are like, well, they really want the money too. Like who doesn't want $12 million? So they're thinking, you know, like it's, it would be great to inherit that money. Just like, please God, don't let it be my spouse that did it. Right. Cause they won't inherit then because proceeds of crime. And, you know, um, so it's, it's, it's a very, me- it's like a nest of vipers, this book. It's like, it is. Well. And, and you know, the, the whole, there's also this almost glee as they look at each other going, well, if that person did it and they catch him, then I get more money because they won't inherit their money, you know. Uh, Exactly, exactly. The the first thing that we hear a police officer say in this book is sometimes having a lot of money can be a bad thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why you wanted to write about, you know, sort of one percenters and and what the detective is sort of getting at when he says that? Um, Well, at that point, when they first come in, it's a very bloody uh, crime in a very wealthy home. It looks like a break and enter and a, a robbery. So it just looks like a violent um, house invasion. Yeah. So that's why she says, you know, sometimes having a lot of money can be a bad thing. 
But um, it turns out even if it's not a home invasion, if it's your own children, sometimes having a lot of money can be a bad thing because your kids don't want to wait for it. Um, so it's true. Sometimes having a lot of money, it can really distort human relationships. So I think money can be money can be great, but it can also really warp how people behave and what they want. And, you know, they'll do things like if, if that was a middle class family with not much money, probably maybe they wouldn't kill their parents. You know, I, I don't know. Like it's money warps people's um, desires and perceptions and what they do. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. So that's what that meant. You know, when, when I was when I'm looking at this family, I can't help be reminded of I think the last podcast I did about a novel of sort of the ultra wealthy was with Kevin Kwan. And he he paints this, you know, I mean, it's just a very different view. He paints this sort of lovely view of we're on Capri and we have everything we want. And it, let's just all peek into the life of these incredibly lucky people. This is almost the opposite end of that of that spectrum. Um, how, how do you imagine these sort of unhappy wealthy people resonating with the average reader? Yeah, I don't think you'll get the kind of um, vicarious living Capri kind of happy feeling that you get with with Kwan's novels. But um, I think they'll they'll sort of see how they ruin things for themselves. You know, you can have everything, but if your if your personality is dysfunctional and vicious and uncaring, you're going to be miserable. Regardless, you carry that around in your house of yourself regardless of what your surroundings are. So not everybody is rich is, you know, hugely happy. Yeah. Um, so maybe they'll, they'll, they won't envy them or their situation, I hope not. <laughs> but they'll see that they've made some pretty bad choices, but you know, it's that whole nature nurture thing. You know, they've, they are who they are. They've got a certain temperament. Money's not helping that. It's not, it hasn't made them better people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a wonderful detail, uh, of these vultures circling over the murder scene. And I mean, now literal vultures, not, not uh, mm -hmm. metaphorical. Um, could, could you talk about not only what, why you put that in there, but just sort of your use of sort of symbolic detail in general, because there's some really rich moments of that in this novel. I love those vultures. So we have a farm in Ontario and um, we had a dead deer on the lawn and these vultures just swarm like they sit on fence posts and they they eat carrion that's that's what they do so i was researching whether i could use the vulture symbol because the family are vultures and they all want their peace and i was wondering if i could use it so i actually researched these turkey vultures and they do um they are in upper new york state like they are in ontario and i had to make sure that they would be around that they could smell the blood yeah. and they can smell blood like just the lightest amount of blood from miles away and there is a, a bit of um, blood outside the house after the murder where the person changes out of the really bloody clothes on the lawn and that's enough for the turkey vultures to come and circle because one of my one of my I think my agent said well they're not in the house how do they know there's a dead body in there and I'm going aha if they can smell the blood so I loved that um, image of them swarming like the family and they are rather creepy looking I don't know if you've oh, ever God, seen one oh. Yeah, yeah, they're they're gross. Like we they're had one on our driveway not long ago because there was a dead raccoon in the woods, and they just, ooh, yeah, they're very creepy looking. Yeah, they're very creepy, especially on mass. Like if you have six yeah. or seven of them, they're, yeah, 
Yeah, well, I like I just, that. Image. I mean, I thought it was just a, such a great detail for so many reasons. The the you know not only the symbolic of death, but also just this notion that that once you're dead, a dead body is a dead body, whether it's a raccoon or a deer or a human being, as far as the mm -hmm. vulture is concerned. You know, and that there's a certain leveling of the of the field where you talk about money not making any difference. You know, that's that's where it really comes out. Now, there's one character um, that we haven't talked about yet who's not in the family, and that's Irene, who mm -hmm. um, is sort of the hired help who's essentially raised these three children. Mm -hmm. um, and, and perhaps some of the good things in her, their character are to her credit, or, or perhaps not, we're not sure. Um, tell us a little bit about the dynamic that you depict between sort of the wealthy family and the, and the hired servant. Well, okay, so Rena is, um, she started out, you know, 30 years previously as the live-in nanny when the, when the eldest child was born because the mother was very hands-off and not very involved with her kids. So the kids have really bonded to the housekeeper, the nanny. Who, so the nanny, she was the live-in nanny for the little kids. And then as they got older, she stayed as the live-in housekeeper and did all the, you know, making the lunches, taking the kids to school. The mother was really hands-off and just did lunching and stuff. And then, um, you know, they kept, they were, the, the Mertens were very, you know, unfeeling. She's just hired help, even though the kids saw her as the woman who raised them and they're close to her, the, the couple uh, that were murdered, they just kept cutting back her, her role with no uh, bad feeling at all. So she, now she's just a cleaner coming in two days a week and they don't seem to feel any sense of um, gratefulness to her for having raised their children. And Arena is a really interesting character because she knows those kids probably better than anyone, better than the parents. Um, so she, has her ideas about who might have done it. And she does some things that throw a monkey wrench in. And, and she's, she's really interesting because it turns out she doesn't really know who did it, but she suspects one of the kids did it. And she has her reasons for suspecting yeah. um, which kid or whatever. So she's an interesting kind of character. And she's horrified because she actually does love each of the kids, even though she knows probably better than anyone what they're actually capable of. So. Yeah, and I think that, you know, she, I, I think one of the sort of sad ironies of the whole thing is that this uh, employee probably comes much closer to having sort of a maternal, unconditional love for these children than, yes. than their own mother does. Um, yes. And yet she, she is also kind of able to step away from that and look at them critically in a way that, that a mother might, a loving mother might not be able to do. That's right. Uh, so I, I just I thought that was a very interesting character and, and, and mm -hmm. sort of gave a nice counterpoint to to this um, to this family dynamic. One of the things you do uh, in this book is you vary the tense uh, that you're using. You write some things in present tense, some things are in, in past and past perfect. Um, is there a particular reason why you're doing that or, or as far as the way you're expecting the reader to react to that? Um, I virtually all my books are you know, basically in, in present tense. I just like to use simple present tense. I started that with Couple Next Door. I just think it has a very uh, sort of feeling of immediacy about it. Yeah. Um, and I just write that way. I mean, I used to write literary fiction and I used past, you know, uh, past tense. But when I started my first thriller, I just thought, you know, I'm going to do present tense and I'm going to do multiple points of view because I like to get inside everybody else's head because it's so good 
to be able to get inside other people's heads and play them all off against each other. I can do a lot of stuff with that. So um, I like the multiple points of view and I, I like the, the present tense because it's really zippy, you know? I mean, occasionally you have to do past tense if you're covering something that's already happened or whatever, but um, yeah, mostly present tense I find is quite- but I think a, a, especially for something like, you know, uncovering bodies or these, like you said, these sudden switches where we were totally convinced it was this person and now suddenly you give us a piece of information that makes it look like it's definitely that person. Um, those those zingers I feel like in 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 present tense, um, as you say, they're just, you know, they're just more immediate and you kind of feel that like mm -hmm. that the reader is in that moment. Um, I just have to say here, that's that's how I write because I don't plan. I'm in that moment. And so when those zingers happen and the the new information comes in, I go, oh, that's really good. So I'll, it, so it's very immediate for me. I'm reading, yeah. I'm writing it to find out, you know, what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, present tense seems to work well with that. So, you know, a lot of this book is, and we, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to delve in a little bit deeper, is even if there weren't a murder, there could be a really good book here about sibling dynamics. Um, and it's something that I think crops up a lot in, in, in fiction. And, uh, you know, in this book, it's the murder that sort of draws the reader into it. But this sibling dynamic has been going on a long time before we as readers come into the, come into the family. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you crafted those relationships? We've talked about the individual nature of those kids, but can you talk about how you crafted the specific relationship among these three children? Because each, if we take any two of them, they have a very different relationship from any other two. Yeah, that's what I like about the whole sibling triangle because some of them you think are pairing off and setting up someone else. And, and so how did I craft it? Well, I I crafted it as I went along. So I I just I just made it up as I went along. And as as the um, I use dialogue a lot to figure out who my characters are. So I'll have something happen that's like um. Uh, it'll be like a, a shoe drop. It'll, there'll be some sort of information revealed. And then I'll have a couple of people talk about it. And when I have the characters having a dialogue about something, what they say reveals what they're thinking and feeling, you know? So yeah. I use dialogue. Like this is actually a what I do to figure out who my characters are. I see what they say mostly. And then I, I do actually have to go back and I cut out quite a lot of the dialogue because dialogue is like talking is how I figure out who they are and what they want someone else to know. And then I have to go back. All my editors and my agent, I was going, it's too talky, it's too talky, it's too talky. And it is, I default to dialogue to find out who my characters are. And then I have to pare it all down because then I know who they are and I cut it back to what is essential. But for me to have my character, to me, they're alive and they're talking and that's how I find out what's happening and how they feel about it. And I find out what they're holding back and, and then I usually, somebody will say something that will lead me to another thought that the plot can have happen. So really I do it by putting them together and seeing what they say. I think that's fascinating to use, the, use dialogue as a way of, of discovering your characters. I, mm -hmm. I spent about 10 years mostly writing plays for children. And so I wrote nothing but dialogue. And then mm -hmm. now when I'm working on a novel, when I get to those dialogue scenes, as you said, you just, you're like, oh, I can go on forever with these two talking. And <laughs> I know it's, it's dialogue is so easy to write. Don't you find? I think so. I mean, oh. I think it's different for different writers, but for me, I feel like yeah. I exercised that one muscle for so long that mm -hmm. when I, when I get there, it is, it is probably the easiest thing for me yeah. uh, to write. And you do, 
you know, you do sort of hear the characters and the cadence of their voice tells you something about them and the, their, yeah. the vocabulary that they choose tells you something about them and, you know. It, what they say, what they don't say. Yeah, what they don't yeah. say, especially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, it's, it's, it's true. One of the one of the threads in this narrative, needless to say, as as it's a murder mystery, um, is the police investigation, the pathology reports, and and so on. Uh, and so we have that that set of characters, uh, the investigators, kind of offsetting the the family set of characters who are mostly the suspects. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, and this could be just in general with all your novels, your uh, the degree to which you research. Um, actual police process and also the degree to which you feel bound by the way police would actually do something or are you willing to tweak that for the sake of a for of the narrative uh police procedure is sort of a bugaboo for me i'm not i'm in ontario in canada i set my books in the u.s so we have somewhat different systems although you know they're not that different but i do have to research how the procedures are different and how the laws are different. And, you know, my last book where I had part of it happening in Colorado and like the research I had to do into inquests in Colorado and how they're different from Ontario and they're, you know, they're quite different. <laughs> so, um, and I don't, I, I don't find the procedure stuff particularly exciting for me. So I try to keep it to a minimum and my, my interest really is in the people who are affected by the crime. So I have the cops coming in essentially to put pressure on them. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, I do have, I am in the, the point of view of the, the detectives, but it's not my favorite place to be. I like to see them. You almost always see my cops coming in and questioning someone and putting pressure on them. I have a lot of those interview dialogue uh, scenes that I love to do. I love yeah. to have a detective yeah. interview a character. And then you're like, oh, ba bum, there's a some new reveal there that slipped out or whatever. Um, but I don't love to do police procedures. So I, I try to keep it to a minimum, but you know, you do have to have autopsy reports and so on. So I do have a couple of very good forensics people that I run things by and I get some really good ideas from forensic people. Like in this book, one of the things is the murderer uh, wore double socks and no shoes. Yeah. And that was something that was, um, so something uh, crooks have been doing in England. Who knew? But I have a forensics person in England. She goes, well, if you have uh, no shoes and a couple pairs of thick socks, you can't get a shoe print. You can't even get a shoe size. You can't get anything. So I thought, oh, I'm going to have somebody with no, no shoes on and a double pair of socks standing at that front door um, the night of the murder. So, you know, stuff like that I love. Yeah. So I, I do have some good forensics people. Um, but, yeah, I try to keep the... The, the police procedure stuff to a minimum. Like I do not want to make a mistake. So I'm very aware of how long they can be in custody before they have to be brought before a judge. I'm aware of the police. Like it gets a bit tedious that they have to tell them, you know, you're here voluntarily. We don't have to, right, right. you know, they, so that they don't have to caution them because I, I don't want to make the mistake where they don't caution them. So I'm very aware of when, at what point they have to caution somebody and who's there voluntarily and who can leave. And it, yeah, I'm careful about that because I used to be a lawyer. So I'm, I'm careful yeah. about that stuff because um, I don't want people calling me up and saying, well, you can't, you know, hold someone for right. three days, you know. So, um, yeah. You know, one of the things I like about the way the police interact with the, the family is there's sort of this, it's kind of this power dynamic at work. I mean, when the policeman comes to your house, you, they're the, they're the people who are kind of in, in charge. Um, uh -huh. But at, again, you use it 
to reveal the dynamics between the spouses and their and the, and the siblings between the siblings and each other because you know everything will be seem to be coming fine and then the police will find out something new and they'll just come and throw this monkey wrench into the family relationship and walk away like okay let's see what happens you know uh yeah. and, and i think that's that's very effective to use the the law enforcement as a way to really facilitate a further exploration of those those main relationships um, rather than the actual investigation itself being the focus of the of the novel. Yeah, I, I, I love like I said, I love to use the cops to put pressure on the family. You, you yeah. probably noticed, um, you know, it's it's not really a giveaway to say that they, you know, they have to search everybody's house. So they yep. go to search Dan's house and his dog just happened to die and it was buried in the back and they see the freshly turned oh. earth and they go dig there. And he's going, my dog died last week. I buried it in the garden. And then when they find the, oh, I don't, I shouldn't give this up. I shouldn't spoil it. Anyway. Well, I mean, that's enough for us to know that it's a yeah. tense moment. Yes. Yeah, it's a tense moment. And the cop um, does something to really put some pressure on there. And I mean, it's also a moment I think that reveals the, you know, the, the uncomfortable, relationship between sometimes between law enforcement and the people they're investigating that you know when when is what is what's going too far at what point have you gone from investigating to to really invading somebody's privacy yeah. um, one of the things about the structure of this novel um and i and i've noticed this in some of your previous work also is you, the chapters are pretty short which means mm -hmm. the action moves along pretty quickly and it also means that the reader you know like the man eating potato chips uh, this is certainly the case for me. You can go well, like just one more, you know. At the and so I end up reading the whole book in one sitting because I keep going well, just one more. Um, can you talk a little bit about about how you use pacing in in crafting a novel? Yeah. So those short chapters are completely deliberate. I do that on purpose. I think they're about I don't know a thousand to fifteen hundred words per chapter, like four to six pages, and I love that. And I I have to admit, and the more the older I get the more I appreciate short chapters. And if I have a really long chapter and, and you know, really long paragraphs that aren't broken up, I do find it tiring. Like I like to have short um, chapters and, and you know, you're right. I mean, that's what keeps you going. You think, oh, one more, one more. Um, I'm reading a Linwood Barthy right now. It's the same thing. I'm going, oh yeah, I can read one more, I can read one more. And, um, but the other thing is I like to change point of view. And I usually like to change point of view at a good spot and quite often that's at the end of a chapter so if i i don't want to be like i can change point of view within a chapter but i mean the natural um the short chapters just seem to work well with my pacing and um i think one of the reasons my pacing is so good is that i do change point of view quite um quickly so i'm not spending 40 pages in one point of view yeah. um i don't really give you a chance to get tired of what's going on before there's some new wrinkle um, to take into account. Also, it's a trick I have because I don't know where I'm going. If I'm in someone's point of view and I don't know what's gonna happen, I just switch to someone else and they'll get it going again, right? So. There's a lot of points in this book where I find myself as a reader and uh, sort of speculating on what would I do if I were in this person's shoes? What would I do? Um, if I were the victim, when we have a, a, a when we see the way the murder plays out, um, what would I do if I were the killer? What would I do if I were one of the suspects? What would I do if I were the investigator? Where would I go next? Um, do you ever step back and and put yourself in the narrative and say, okay, if I were this person, what what would be my next move? 
No, <laughs> I, I, um, no, I, I can't think I've ever done that. What I yeah. actually do is I, when I take over that point of view, like I am that person yeah. and I just, I'm just acting at the moment. So, um, don't know how to answer that. No, I, I don't really. No is a perfectly good answer. I mean, I, I I just wondered because I think I think maybe the reader is more inclined to do that because as a reader, yes, we're on the outside looking in, you know, whereas yeah. you're 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 inside the characters already. Um, I think what you want to do is avoid, you know, having your character do anything that's stupid that is unbelievable that um, you the people are going to go, you know, no, no, I don't yeah. I don't believe that. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Um, you should be able to answer all of them very briefly, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and to your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? That's a good question. Um, I, I can't think of a single word that I like to work into my writing. That's a fair enough answer, I think. Um, It'll probably come to me. Yeah. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Chuckled. Yeah. I don't like to see in a thriller when someone chuckled. Because I don't know anyone who chuckles and it just seems. Yeah. It Yeah. Chuckles. Where's your favorite place to write? Oh, um, I like to be in a, in my own desk, like with an empty house that's completely clean with nobody in it, but that doesn't happen anymore. Um <laughs> Sadly, we've all been locked in together for, you know, 16 months. Um, Yeah, my own desk with my laptop. I'm a creature of habit and I like to be in my at my desk and I um, do not write in coffee shops or anything like that. I hate distraction. I hate noise. I hate music. I don't like visual clutter. I just I want to be quiet. So you really just answered the next question, too, which is where could you never write? But I'm guessing that's in a noise. I have written in a coffee shop when I absolutely had to because I can't even remember why who was in the house but I'm really bad at it like I I don't focus well with a lot of distraction you know a lot of people you know they'll write with music on I, I can't write even with this you know quiet music on it it distracts me to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention oh probably you know you can't start a sentence with and that's not even a proper rule or um you know, you have to have a complete sentence. Like in thrillers, you don't have to have a complete sentence. Um, I like to bend the rules. Um, you could do that if you know what you're doing. I mean, and I think all good thriller writers, you know, break grammar rules all the time. It's fun to do. I even like to make up words. Um, I made up a word for a thriller, but I can't remember what it was. Anyway, um, I love to make up words in my own life. I don't use them in my books generally. Um, but yeah, breaking rules of grammar, it's fun. You know what? I can't remember my early childhood. I don't remember much before I was six or seven. Um, I know I was read to. Um, I do remember fairy tales with beautiful illustrations. You know, Hansel and Gretel was a huge favorite. And I remember the pages and the jewels. And yeah, so probably the fairy tales. I I love fairy tales. And I mentioned fairy tales in my books, too. Like I had a reference to fairy tales here. I had a reference to fairy tales in my last book. Just how dark they can be. Um, what are you reading now? I'm reading Linwood Barkley, um, Find You First, which is a great read. What book would you like to have written? Ah, uh, you know, honestly, Girl A by Abigail Dean. 
What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A God in Ruins. <laughs> you know, like a, a literary, have you read that one? Uh, oh my God. Like, so Kate Atkinson is, she's a literary writer. Yeah. She also does her private detective um, series, but her literary books, I mean, this one, it's a God in Ruins and it's a family sort of saga. It's about the war, but there's some thriller moments like with the pillow over the face and the yeah. kid on the railroad tracks. Like it's, Talk about suspense and tension. Like she, she's a genius. So yeah, I would say I, I wish I'd written a, a god. Um, and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Do you know what I? I, uh, I like to hear that I couldn't put it down, and that's probably the thing I hear the absolute most because yeah. that's what I set out to do. I wanted to write page turners that people could not put down, and that is what I hear every day from people. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Sherry LaPena, whose novel, Not a Happy Family, is available wherever books are sold. Sherry, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In upcoming episodes, I'll be talking to some of the writers appearing at this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors on September 25th. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) 